This morning to Acts chapter 2. I suppose you could open your Bibles wherever you want, but you, if you open them there, you'll be with the rest of us. Acts chapter 2, verses 41 through 47 is our text. The topic, believers were marked by having all things in common as 3,000 were added in one day and then more each subsequent day. The title of our message, The Marks of Communism. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, fellowship, in the breaking of bread, and in prayers. Then fear came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. Now all who believed were together and had all things in common, sold their possessions and goods, and divided them among all as anyone had need. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. Let's pray together. Lord, as always, we're excited about your word because it is alive and powerful. It's like a sharp surgical instrument that divides between the soul and the spirit. It gets deep into our hearts and shows us true and beautiful things, Lord, that we couldn't otherwise know or discern. Reveal your son, Jesus Christ, to us, Lord, by the Holy Spirit. Tell us how much he loves us, how much you love us. Fill us with the knowledge of your grace, the wonder of your mercy and forgiveness, and that we might go from this place overflowing in that knowledge. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Church growth is a major emphasis in many churches today. Sometimes it is the major emphasis. Numbers and statistics become the measure of success. On the other end of the spectrum are Christians who don't appreciate numerical growth. They criticize large churches as mega churches that are unsatisfying and maybe even unscriptural. We just read the account of the first day and subsequent days of the church Jesus founded. What did we see? For one thing, we saw that it became a mega church in less than a day. Twice in the text, we read the word added in verse 41 and then again in verse 47. 3,000 were added in one day. Then more were added each subsequent day, continuing to the present day. Jesus must not be opposed to church growth. But we also saw that growth was simple. It wasn't due to the goal setting of the apostles. It wasn't the result of any program. Church growth was the supernatural work of God and the continued working of God supernaturally through his people. Jesus definitely wants to add souls to his church, but he wants it to proceed in a simple way. Church growth should be by simple addition. I'll organize my thoughts around two points. Number one, Jesus follows a simple formula for adding souls to his church. And number two, follow Jesus with a simple faithfulness and souls are added to his church. 
First of all, in verses 41 and 2, Jesus follows a simple formula for adding souls to his church. There really is a huge church growth movement. Local churches all over America and all over the world are adopting the programs of one or two mega churches and hoping for similar results. I personally think it is sad when church leaders would rather follow the leading of other church leaders rather than the leading of the Holy Spirit. Critics of the church growth movement call it seeker-sensitive to point out that often the participating churches are adopting programs and methods whose main goal seems to be making unbelievers feel comfortable. In many cases, unfortunately, the criticism is valid. A church should make unbelievers feel physically welcome, but not spiritually comfortable. After all, if you are explaining the gospel, you've got to let people know that they're sinners. There has to be conviction of sin in order for there to be conversion to Christ. So I understand, in one sense, I understand the desire to have people come into the church, but they need to then hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and be confronted with their sin so that they will make Uh, an informed decision about where they'll spend eternity. And so our goal should always be to make unbelievers feel welcome, to invite them to church so they'll feel welcome and then become uncomfortable when they understand that they are sinners in need of the Savior, but then be blessed as they receive Christ and his provision for their sins. We don't need to adopt the programs of any other contemporary church. We only need to follow the simple formula of the first church. And so in verse 41, then those who gladly received his word were baptized, and that day about 3,000 souls were added to them. I commented on this verse last week, and it was in the context of water baptism, how water baptism is not necessary to save you. If you're interested in that as a topic, you can get that uh, study. It's online. You can read the transcript. I only repeat it this week because it introduces us to the life of the first church. It gives us a number to begin with. Anyone who has a problem with large or mega churches has a problem with Jesus. He poured out the Holy Spirit upon the 120, then upon about 3,000 more. There is no perfect scriptural size for a local church. At least I can't find it in the Bible. If I was looking for it, It would be a big church because that's how the church started, 120, then 3,000 more. A lot of times I've read and I've seen, you know, in books and literature that people have come up somehow with the perfect size for a church. And, And usually it's just a matter of their own personal preference. Jesus added to his church, and so if you were going to choose, a large church would be preferable, I guess. Think of it this way. If I prefer a smaller church where my needs can be better met, that's the usual argument, what are folks who get saved supposed to do? So you're out in the world, you're at your place of business or school or wherever, and you share Christ with somebody, and they become a Christian, and they say, hey, man, what do I do next? Go to the church on the corner, not my church. Why? Don't you like your church? I love my church. I don't want it to grow because it ministers to me. It meets my needs just the way it is. But there's a big mega church that you'll like. After a few months, you'll get tired of that, and then you'll find a smaller church too. I mean, people have this philosophy. I've had people, nobody here has ever said this to me, but I have had people say that to me. I don't want to go to a big church. 
On the other end of the spectrum, there are people who don't want to go to a small church, and so this is, I think, one of the reasons why God, in his grace, raises up large churches, and he raises up smaller churches. But within that, I I think sometimes we need to confront our own heart and say, now, wait a minute. I'm in this church, I have relationships in this church, and, and now God is doing a work in this church one way or the other. Who am I to decide what I need and what I want? Why don't I just trust the Lord? If the Lord decides that our church has become a mega church, then praise the Lord for that. If the Lord decides that our church is going to remain a certain size or maybe even get smaller, nobody ever talks about reverse church growth. But that happens too sometimes. Praise the Lord for that. The idea is that whose church is it anyway? It's the Lord's church. He does what he will with it when he desires. For at least 10 days from the ascension of Jesus to the day of Pentecost, the 120 had been meeting together. Now they numbered 3,120. How would the ministry change to accommodate the larger numbers? In one sense, the ministry did not change. They did the same things in the larger group that they had been doing in the smaller group. They are the simple things that every church should always be doing. Verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship in the breaking of bread and in prayers. First, note that they continued steadfastly. The growth and development of their new spiritual life took priority over everything else. Before we talk about, you know, the four things, there is a, the, the human factor, the personal factor, the Christian factor, and that is my own personal desire that I would grow and develop as a Christian. Obviously, my life is, is more than just going to church, but it's within the context of church and, and my spiritual life where I'm growing that touches all the other aspects of my life. And so I should have that hunger and that desire to continue to learn about the Lord in the context of the local church. And so how did they do that? How did they grow and develop? Well, there are four factors in the Lord's formula, if you want to use that word. The first is the apostles' doctrine. The 12 men who had been with Jesus since the beginning of his ministry, the 11 plus now Matthias, they were witnesses of his physical resurrection and ascension. They taught the new believers everything that they knew about the Lord. They went back over his ministry on the earth. They obviously, you see from Peter's use of the scripture, they were drawing out uh, inferences and applications from the Old Testament that spoke of Jesus Christ, and they just spent their time teaching and in prayer. Later on in Acts, the apostles will confront a situation. They say, hey, we cannot leave the teaching of the word, the study of the word, and prayer. That's what we're called to do. And so uh, they got together with the new believers and they taught them. You cannot and will not grow unless you are reading for yourself and hearing taught the word of God. And thus, it should be obvious that churches must emphasize the teaching of God's word to believers for their edification. The best way to do that, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, through the Bible. That way you hit everything, the whole counsel of God. And more than that, the teaching must emphasize the person and work of Jesus Christ. It should have a flavor of his grace and his mercy and his love. Jesus said, I come in the volume of the book, behold, it speaks of me. 
And so when we teach the Word of God, we are talking about a person. It is revealing Jesus Christ. It's full of geography and history and doctrine and prophecy and all of these different things. But all of that should have a relationship to the person and work of Jesus Christ. He's alive, risen from the dead, coming back soon, and it's him that we want to know and love and see. And so the focus needs to be on that. Now, this all seems very obvious. Sometimes when I'm teaching, I think this is obvious, yet every generation struggles at some point with the simple teaching of the Word of God. And it, 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 for some reason, it, 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 somebody gets the idea that, that it's not working or that it's not enough and, and that people don't want to come in and hear the Word of God taught. Of course, whether they want to come in and hear it taught or not should be inconsequential. It's what God wants anyway. But then there's always a technique or a method or a way of watering down the word of God to attract people and, and, and to, to change the way we're doing that. And then some churches just don't teach through the word of God. They just don't. Week after week, there's a message from Scripture. It's a verse here, a verse there, a topic of, of interest to tied into maybe a news event or something like that. And it's, it's good, it's okay as far as it goes, but there's not a, a complete diet, a steady understanding of the word of God. I run into a lot of Christians, I know a lot of Christians who unfortunately are very shallow in their understanding of who the Lord really is in their life. They've never heard anybody talk about Paul the apostle having a thorn in his flesh and praying three times, Lord, please take this thorn from me, this suffering, remove it from me. And then the Lord says, no, my grace is sufficient for you. My strength is made perfect in your weakness. And then Paul says, praise the Lord, glory be to God. Then I'll go ahead having ophthalmalia or whatever it was that was wrong with him. Scholars think that he had an eye disease called ophthalmalia and that when he preached, his eyes oozed with pus. Just wanted to give you a visual there, you know. <laughs> I mean, I'm with Paul. Take this from me. And, and God says, no, I, I'm going to show people something in and through the suffering of your life. And Paul said, then bring it on. I glory in suffering. Tell somebody to glory in their suffering who's never heard anything like that and you'll get punched out. <laughs> a lot of Christians, they waver in their faith. They don't, Where is God when it hurts? What kind of a God would allow this? A big God, a great God, a sovereign God, a God who is bigger than your circumstances. Oh, I've never heard that before. What are you listening to? We're not really going through the word of God. So this is very critical, very important stuff. The second factor in the Lord's formula is fellowship. It's the English translation of the Greek word koinonia. And it's a poor translation because there is no English word that it properly translates. It's a deep, rich word that means because we share in the nature of Jesus Christ as new creatures, we have a connection and a unity with all other believers throughout the church age and especially in our local gathering. But it's more than just gathering together and being together. It means we have mutual responsibility to encourage one another in our spiritual growth. It means we are always to have a sense of wanting to stir one another up to love and good works. You know, the Bible says that where two or three are gathered, there I am in the midst of them. And we're happy for that. We're excited about having Jesus in our midst. 
But it's not just when we're having an official church service. Anytime you're with another Christian, Jesus says, I'm there. And in the friendship, friendship, important, wonderful, blessed. But Jesus says there's more than friendship, there is fellowship. And fellowship sometimes means that you put your friendship on the line and tell your friend what they need to hear from God's word. Be sure, don't make it up. I know a lot of people go around exhorting other people and, and they're just you know, full of hot air. But if somebody's doing something, and especially something wrong or, or sinful, hey, you have a responsibility and a love for that person as their friend to take it to the level of fellowship and say, hey, this is wrong. If more of this would happen, more people would be strengthened. A lot of times I try to enlist people's help, not so much people in the church, but maybe there's a problem, somebody's in sin, marriage relationship going sour, and one of the spouses is divorcing or wanting to leave, and, and I'll ask, I'll say, are there, are there any Christian influences in this person's life? Do they have friends or family that are Christians? Oh yes, their, fam their mother and father, their sister and brother. You talk to the mother and father and sister and brother, well, we don't wanna get involved. After all, it's our daughter, it's our sister, it's our you know, son or our, our brother, and we don't want to make ripples in that relationship. And this is where fellowship kicks in. Why not? You'd rather not make ripples because you don't want to tell somebody the truth about what they're doing? And, and see, fellowship stirs one another up. And just on a more positive note, just to encourage others in their walk with the Lord, to you know, invite them to be more involved with the Lord. This is fellowship, not just our gathering together, and this is what the early church models for us. Then the third factor, the breaking of bread, with an emphasis on a particular bread. Commentators and scholars almost universally agree that these words are referring to what we call communion or the Lord's Supper. Jesus gave it to us as an ordinance to follow. He said, as often as we like, and, and we can argue about that, and we do. People do argue about that. There are churches that take communion every day. Uh, there's those that do it every week. Some don't do it very often at all, but they do it occasionally. And, and uh, you know, I, Jesus said graciously, do it as often as you like. We read later on in the New Testament, they shared communion at least once a week on a Sunday after a potluck meal called the Love Feast or the Agape Feast. What was happening... A lot of the Christians were poor, couldn't afford really a decent meal, uh, and so the Christians would get together and the wealthier Christians were, you know, they, they'd bring the, the better dishes, the, and then everybody was able to share. They got a little carried away with it later on in the city of Corinth. Paul had to say, hey, some of you are bringing your food, eating your own food and getting drunk while the poor are looking on, and that's why... You're weak and dying because God is judging you. And so, so they had this, this love feast that they did. But there's no really one way of doing this. It's just whatever God puts on our hearts. But very important that believers should make every effort to share communion with one another when it is offered. The fourth factor is prayers in the plural. And since we're talking about the corporate gathering, the church, this reference to prayers means prayer meetings. It's great to be men and women who pray in our closets. We need to come out of the closet, as it were. <laughs> the church must pray together. And so that's it. 
That's the Lord's formula for the church. Do it in a small church, do it in a mega church. It worked for 120, it worked for the 3,120. It's going to work when 5,000 more are added in chapter four. It went on working everywhere. Churches were planted in the book of Acts. It works in every culture with every known possibility throughout the history, the modern history of the world. And so that's, that's God's plan. Nothing more, nothing less. So how are we doing? Let's stop and evaluate ourselves. Well, first of us, we each evaluate ourselves, and the first thing to do is ask, am I a believer? Am I a Christian? It should seem obvious, but a lot of people go to church who are not Christians. I went to church up until the time I was 13, and and I had no idea that I needed to become a Christian. I just went to church. I went through the rituals of that particular church, and as a result of the outward rituals, I believed that I would die and go to heaven no matter what I did. And uh, once I finished the final ritual, as I understood it, I was free from that. I kind of had a vague feeling I would suffer in purgatory for several millennia, (laughs) but I would eventually get to heaven, and that's all I was really concerned with. Protestant churches sometimes are no better They're not preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. People aren't being really confronted with their sin. And so we need to ask, am I a believer? When when this study began and he says they uh, were added, he's talking about those who believed and were baptized, giving public testimony of the fact that they were saved. And then if you are a believer, evaluate your steadfast continuance in the daily life of your church. Now, we don't make a big deal about this. We don't have attendance. We don't keep attendance. We don't even have a membership role. I don't call people regularly and say, hey, you've missed three Sundays in a row. You do this to me, by the way. You come up to me in the store, and I say, hey, how's it going? Oh, I'm gonna get to church soon, I really am. Uh, Okay, all right, fine, no, really, you know, I've just been busy. I I think, uh, you know, uh, I think my house was on fire, and my car blew up, and no, no, it's okay, really, you know? Yeah, I really wanna come, okay, all right, you know, so I believe you. Let's have church right here. You know, so we don't do that. But, but, uh, but each of us has to, you know, gauge our own commitment. Sometimes it, it's a good thing to think, why aren't I going to X, Y, or Z that the church is offering? What is it that's more important to me at this stage of my life? I'll just share a personal thing with you, and, and some of you may not like this, but when has that ever stopped us? But uh, a lot of times, people aren't going to church they're not gathering with believers because they're doing things with and for their children. And that's okay. That's, that's fine. Some of the things you're doing with and for your children have no eternal value whatsoever. And, and it's some kind of an activity they're involved with. It's got no eternal value and there's no evangelistic value to it. Uh, come to church. You'll be glad that you did. And, and, and so, you know, we did extracurricular things. Don't get me wrong. We, we did, I coached. Thank you. I coached badly, but I coached. I was the only coach in the YMCA history that no one wanted to be on my t-ball team, but I did. I had get, you know, t-ball is non-competitive. <laughs> I had the only non-competitive t-ball team in the history of mankind, and as a result, people begged to be on someone else's team. You know, T-ball, you can't, there's no win or loss record on T-ball, except that I know that we lost all of our games, and, and uh, it's crazy, uh, that kind of stuff. 
put, spirit, put the priority on spiritual things and then do those other things if you have time. Spend time at church with your kids. Gosh. <laughs> now, as far as fellowship, we do a lot of it. And uh, it's rich and it's personal and, and uh, communion is something that we may need to do more of in our fellowship. But uh, there's, you know, we do it once a month. Or I'm, I completely don't know where I'm at right now in my study, by the way. <laughs> What's the last thing I said before I... Do you, do you have any idea what I was talking about before I got... Are we eva- oh, we were evaluating ourselves, that's right, okay, so. That's all right. Senior moment, I, I don't need anybody talking to me now. As a church, I'd give us good marks for teaching the word. I'm not being prideful, I'm not talking about me. We believe in the inspiration, the infallibility, and the inerrancy of the word of God. We teach it verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and book by book. We teach it to children and to young adults and to adults. Our meetings are always word-based, and they will always be. As far as fellowship, we do a lot of it. It's rich and meaningful. Again, though, on an individual basis, we need to evaluate whether or not we are stirring one another up as we fellowship. There are no purely social gatherings among believers. Whenever you're with another believer, it is spiritual. And God wants to keep us on that higher plane. Communion is something we may need to do more of. Right now, we do it once a month. Nothing wrong with that. Except most of our people are not able to come out on the last Wednesday of the month. So we can pray about other times of offering it. And you can pray about coming when it is offered. Prayers, such as prayer meetings, are always the lightest attended meetings. I don't say that to put a burden on anybody, it's just the reality. I mean, prayer, a prayer meeting, if you wanna ensure that nobody will come out, just have a prayer meeting, you know, just that's the way it is in almost every church. Most of us should make an effort to pray before our Sunday morning services. Everyone with email should be on our email prayer chain. Just send us an email at prayer at calvaryhanford.com and say, put me on the prayer chain so that we can send you prayer requests and you can be praying for them. And once a year when we have our 24 hours of prayer, it really should be packed out. Uh, Everybody has at least 10 minutes during 24 hours to stop by and pray. There's no better formula. There are no other programs we should follow. We should be stirring up each other to continue steadfast in these things, which means we must first be doing them ourselves. Verses 43 through 47, follow Jesus with a simple faithfulness and souls are added to his church. These next verses reveal another extremely simple aspect of adding to the church. As you grow in the Lord, be faithful and others will be drawn to him and get saved and added to the church. And when I say the church, I'm not talking about Calvary, Hanford or any church, particular church, added to the eternal role of heaven as expressed by attending a local church, perhaps. And so in verse 43, fear came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were done through the apostles. The word for fear is better translated awe. The believers were in awe of the Lord working in and through them. 
One example of his working in and through them was that the apostles were performing many wonders and signs. We'll see one of them in chapter 3 as Peter and John heal the lame man. Just as a footnote, uh, as you know, we we do a lot of reading, I do a lot of studying, and and most of the books that are written, uh, Bible commentaries are, are conservative, and most of the conservatives feel that miracle signs and wonders passed off the scene. They were important for the birth of the church, but now, you know, occasionally you might see a miracle, but it's, a, it's kind of a weird thing to them. And one of the things that they almost always say is that they go through the, the book of Acts and they count how many miracles there are in the book of Acts. And they say, see, there's only a handful of miracles in the 30 years that uh, cover, that this covers. So even in the first century, there weren't that many miracles. What well, it says right here, they did many wonders and signs. It was commonly known. I mean, these guys were going around all the time uh, being used by God in this powerful way. And, and, and some who weren't apostles were used in this way. And so, you know, we're, we're open to what God wants to do. God hasn't quit doing anything. Uh, you know, a lot of times we say, well, God's, God's not doing that anymore. Why not? Who, where did he say that? Where did God say, I'm only going to do this for about 30 years, and then after that, you know, I'm, I'm not going to do that anymore? It's, it's just not in your Bible. Now, the point being made, though, here in verse 43, is that believers had a reverential fear of the Lord. They were in awe of his presence among them. Churches lack power and influence sometimes because believers within them have no fear of the Lord. They, they act in ways that show they have no fear of the Lord. They cause division and disunity. They uh, gossip and slander and backbite. They disobey the Lord in their personal lives. Uh, you know, and just, I guess one way of thinking of this is, is, would I be saying this and doing this if Jesus were physically present in front of me? And if the answer is no, then don't, because he's spiritually present in our midst and his Holy Spirit is present within us. And so a lot of churches, we can lack power because we don't have an awesome understanding that the Lord is right here with us. Verse 44, now all who believed were together and they had all things in common and they sold their possessions and goods and divided them among all as anyone had need. Now when reading this, you have to remember their situation. The 3,000 who were saved and then day by day after that, those who were saved, they included many from far away who were only visiting Jerusalem for the celebration of the Feast of Pentecost. They'd come from all over uh, the, you know, the realm. You read about some of the places they came from earlier in chapter two. It was required of male Jews that they attend uh, the temple feasts at least three times a year. And so some of these people had traveled great distances and they had planned to return to their homes immediately after the feast But now, newly saved, they wanted to learn about the Lord. We don't have this problem today. If you're here today uh, and you're an unbeliever and you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, you could keep coming here week after week, day by day, learn about the Lord. Or there are a myriad of other churches here in Kings County. Or maybe you're a visitor. There's churches everywhere. But if you were a first century Jew and had just converted to Christianity and you had to go back to Phrygia wherever that is, uh, there was nobody there. You were the only Christian there and maybe a few other Phrygians who were with you and you didn't know anything about God. 
There was nobody there to teach you. You, you. you had the Old Testament scriptures, which God would illuminate to your heart and show you Christ. But it was a very different situation than we're ever faced with. And so they decide, hey, I want to stay. I want to know more about the Lord. And you 12 guys... You're the ones that knew him and walked with him and saw him from the beginning of his ministry and you've seen him raised from the dead and so tell me about the Lord. They had no local homes in Jerusalem. They couldn't afford, their credit cards were maxed out and so uh, it was still a couple of hundred years before Western Union and so they limited, you know, they were limited to their means and so all of them helped each of them to be able to stay as long as possible. Communal living or having all things in common was suggested by their unique situation. By the way, this is not communism. It would be communism, having all things in common, or communalism, living in a community. Communism is something weird that the church doesn't uh, you know, uh, engage itself in. Now, I don't think Christians should establish, uh, establish communes. That's my personal opinion but I don't see anything in the Bible that says you should establish a commune. The Lord can and establish communes in certain unique situations. It's not wrong to live communally, but there's no uh, mandate to do it. They had to do it because of their unique situation. Later on in Acts, we'll see that there's no commandment for you to sell everything to help others. It's up to you how much you give to the Lord for the work of the Lord. But it's always good to evaluate your giving The fact is you're given freedom to determine how much you give of your material substance to the Lord. Just make sure the freedom doesn't become a slavery to keep everything for yourself because God loves a cheerful giver. Verse 46, so continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. The temple at Jerusalem was a huge facility with public access to many areas. They held daily meetings in the temple that the believers attended. What did they do at those meetings? Well, obviously the apostles taught And then they broke up into smaller groups and went home with each other, and they talked about the things of the Lord over meals. I think you ought to uh, reinvigorate, if you want to reinvigorate your Christian life, make a commitment to come to church on Sunday and link up with another couple, either go out to eat if you can afford Panera, or (laughs) invite them home and just say, hey, let's go and let's just talk about the things of the Lord. Let's uh, go over Gene's sermon. Wasn't that stupid, you know, when he said that, but I kind of agreed with his reading of the scripture at least, you know, I mean, you know, whatever. And, and I mean, just get into it. I remember when Pam and I have said this before, when we were first saved, we would go out to lunch just with each other because she would have notes and I would have notes and the things that the Lord was showing us were so precious and profound, we, we couldn't believe that it was over when it was over. We wanted to know more about that. And so, fellowship with the Lord over a meal. Luke emphasized three observable results of their faithful growth in the Lord. Gladness, simplicity of heart, praising God. Now, the word for gladness means a demonstration of extreme joy. There should be a joy about you that others can sense and feel something that's demonstrated through your life. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, somebody has told you along the way that joy is different than happiness. Happiness depends on your happenings or your happenstance. 
Uh, but you're left with the impression that though you're maybe unhappy, you still have joy and that joy is this settled opinion in your heart. But, but you, you get the idea that you don't have to look joyful, that it's just way to, and we sing, you know, I've got that joy, 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 where is it? Down, down in my heart. I'm down. I'm down with joy, man. You know, and, 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 and it's like Christians, you know, I, I mean, I know there, there are tragedies. There, I've cried two or three times. Uh, once when I came out of the womb. Uh, no, that's not true. But I mean, I understand. I mean, you're not all, but I think, you know, sometimes we, we, we're so into being unhappy and having joy about it. You know, I mean, nobody's going to come to you and say, man, I want to be as unhappy as you are. I want to be as settled in my unhappiness as you are. I don't know anybody as happy being unhappy as you are. I mean, there should be some kind of a joy about you. It should be demonstrable. There should be a demonstration of joy. Uh, smile every now and then. Uh, you know, it, there should be something attractive about that. And, and it, some of us need help with that. I mean, we really do. We, we you know, rather than being Tigger, we're Eeyore. Are you a Christian? Yeah, thanks for noticing. <laughs> I mean, you know, get over it. Be happy. Simplicity of heart doesn't sound like something that would be observable, but it, it is. Here's one understanding I have of simplicity of heart. The idea is that as a believer, you can put things into a proper perspective you have God's mind and God's heart on things. You know that God is sovereign and there's always bigger issues. There's always something going on in God's sovereignty. And you have a simple understanding of that. So when a tragedy happens, when suffering happens, when anything happens, you're thinking eternally, you're thinking spiritually, you're wondering how does this really fit into the God who loves me and cares for me and wants to reach out to others through me. And so whatever shakes other people, it's like, well, how do I, how do I figure this out? What does this mean? You have kind of a simple understanding of, well, God is at work. How can you say that? What kind of a God would allow this? Well, I'll tell you what kind of a God would allow this. And, and we are a very simple people. And, then, and people accuse you. They, and we don't like it. We like to be thought of as a very complicated intellectual people. And so when people accuse us of being simple, we think of the biggest words that we can. They don't make sense in the sentences that we're using them in, but people say, well, you're, you're too simple. I said, don't obfuscate the situation. <laughs> Whoa. That's a real word. But anyway, I don't know what it means, but I use it all the time. Anyway, so uh, you have a simple understanding of things. You know what's going on ultimately, eternally, in the world, in people's lives, and it's all about Jesus Christ. And so there is a simplicity of heart. Uh, just keep things as simple as possible. And then praising God is the same catch-all phrase that it is today, where we go around saying, hey, praise the Lord. It just, what else can you say? It indicates you understand and communicate to others that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord. These personal qualities brought them favor with the people. Persecution by the religious authorities was coming. 
But for now, the common citizens of Jerusalem could see the positive overflow of the baptism with the Holy Spirit. They knew from Scripture that the baptism with the Holy Spirit could only come from heaven. Seeing the gladness and simplicity of heart and praise in the daily lives of the believers, unbelievers were drawn to them. The believers then pointed them to the baptizer with the Holy Spirit. They pointed them to Jesus, their Messiah, who was raised from the dead and living and reigning in heaven. It resulted in the Lord adding to the church daily those who were being saved. Conversations were leading to conversions. Jesus' master plan for evangelism in this whole formula is you and me, period. It's you and me just living the Christian life with these qualities and characteristics and people in our families and in our neighborhoods and where we go to school and work and uh, shop and all of that being drawn to us because there is something supernaturally different about us. And, you know, whether people are drawn to you every day or whether, you know, I mean, it, you're just to live the Christian life, to f- be faithful in pursuing these things and to look for every opportunity to bring a spiritual perspective on everything that's happening so that the Lord will add daily to the church those who are being saved. And I think it, uh, personal opinion, uh, obviously you know that we don't like programs, we don't do any programs really, and we kind of take it on the chin for that sometimes because everybody wants to know why we're not doing the programs that every other church is doing, and, and by definition, we, it makes us seem snobbish. Oh, we, we don't do that. You know, I, but we don't mean it that way. I just really think that God just wants you to live the Christian life, just be a Christian. And, and, and I think sometimes for some people, not for everybody, I'm not wanting to overly criticize people, but I think sometimes a program is a, is, is a place to hide. It's a place to hide from the truth that I'm really not as in love with Jesus as I once was. I don't want to give up something that's now in my life. I don't want to do the first works. I, I don't want to be considered a Jesus freak or a fanatic. I don't want to risk losing my job. I don't want my family to think I'm odd or weird. I don't want my neighbors to snicker behind my back or whatever it is. And, and so I'll get involved in this program. Other people are involved with it, and, and there's some help there and strength in numbers, and everybody's doing it. It's a little bit watered down, and it doesn't really require any change in my part. It just, it's me doing things rather than me being somebody. And the Lord eventually, I think the Lord comes to us all the time, and, and in, in, in his love, he says, you've left your first love. Gene, you have left your first love. And I always say, no, I haven't. I love you. Look at all I do for you. And the Lord says, Gene, you've left your first love. You don't love me like you used to. There's just that quality, that purity, that that excitement, that joy, that abandon, that fear, however you don't do it, it's just not what it was. And I can fight with the Lord all I want about that. I've found one thing to be true. The Lord is always right, and I am always wrong in an argument with the Lord. You You ever fight with somebody and you say, you think you're always right? The Lord is always right. Don't say that to him, by the way. And uh, so, you know, the Lord's right. And, and it's, it, the Christian life is very simple. 
We are the ones who complicate it. The Lord says, just get up in the morning, spend time with me, love me, do what I tell you to do, realize how much I love you, do these four things. There's nothing could be simpler than to be engaged in these four things as I've called you to be and, uh, and see the result and the fruit of it in your life and in the life of your church and in the life of your community. That's all that I want to do until I hear the trumpet and the Lord takes me home. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these things. I pray that we would embrace their simplicity, that we would be thankful for them, knowing that you haven't given us anything hard to do or anything beyond our ability to do, and that even in these simple things, you've given us your spirit to uh, aid us and, and help us. If there are some of us here today, Lord, as I'm sure there are that need to be refreshed and renewed in our love with you and for you, do that work so that there would be an overflow of your spirit, an abundance of joy, joy unspeakable and full of glory so that people will see it in us, Lord. When Paul the Apostle was in prison, Lord, he sang and people wanted to know how they could be saved. How is it that you had that joy, Paul, and, and how is it that I can have it too? And I pray that we would have your spirit in such abundance, Lord, that joy would uh, be like a, a fragrance that accompanies our lives, that it would be a, a, a countenance, Lord, that is upon us. Use us, we pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's stand together. Some of the guys will be down here to pray with you this morning. They love doing that. If you have any needs or desires or wants, uh, maybe you just wanna share something, come on down. Wait patiently, they'll get to you. May God bless and keep you this week as you just consider these things. Your responsibility, uh, be good Bereans, as it says later in the book of Acts. Take this passage, read it for yourself. Think about the things that were said, especially the things that seemed, the Holy Spirit seemed to be speaking to your heart. Uh, reinforce them, make whatever changes are necessary because the Lord only wants to do things that are good for you and that will further your understanding of who He is and what He's doing in your life. May God bless you, in Jesus' name, amen.